How is Gen AI impacting the tax function? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. The best way I can analogize, if you think back to 30 years ago with spreadsheets, at that point in time, most tax planning and processes were done with a pencil, paper, and a calculator. But everyone thought that was going to remove the need for tax professionals. The reality is that they learned how to code spreadsheets, they learned how to build better business insights, more scenarios, and years and years later, there's more tax jobs than ever. And so we see AI as having the same impact. Learn more at EY.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm Joe Weisenthal. So this is a live recording that we are doing at the Credit Market Structure Alliance Conference. We are going to be talking about one of the thorniest, most controversial topics in financial markets, and it's not compensation, it's liquidity. Right. And so obviously, you know, it was kind of a wild year for markets overall in 2022. I guess uh, markets have been a little bit more constructive, calm so far to start 2023. But like, I mean, I think it's still pretty clear that people are like anxious about like, what are what are the various risks lurking out there, particularly like coming off such a big like repricing of interest rates and such a uncertain macro environment. That's exactly right. And we have had instances where liquidity risk has reared its head recently, notably with some real estate funds based in the UK that had to suspend redemptions. That prompted a well-known question of whether or not we should actually have these illiquid assets in a liquid wrapper. So we are going to be delving into all of that with really the perfect guest. We are going to be speaking with Fabio Natalucci. He is the Deputy Director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the International Monetary Fund. He's responsible for the Global Financial Stability Report that the IMF puts out every year, previously at the Fed and the Treasury. So really the perfect guest. Fabio, thank you so much thank for coming you. on. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Um, so maybe a very simple question. It seems like a simple question just to begin with, but it never is. What is liquidity? <laughs> so liquidity, and I think we talk about market liquidity here, not liquidity on the balance sheet with banks, but essentially it's the ability to uh, liquefy in a position at market prices, they don't, at a price that doesn't move or the overall prices uh, significantly. So you can do it quickly, you can do it without mark much market impact. So you can essentially liquefy a position without having major impact on the overall market. So, you know, I mentioned it in the intro, I mean, we, 2022 was kind of a wild year for multiple asset classes, et cetera. By and large though, not too much broke, right? I mean, I think like, so you'd have to, like, looking back, feels like it could have been worse. Yeah, so this is the big question, right? So if you work in financial stability now and you say, okay, if someone told you a year ago that the Federal Reserve would raise interest rate 450 basis points, 500 basis points, uh, do you think it would have worked smoothly or what would have broke? And I think the answer you would be looking for places and things that they, they were, that something didn't work, right? Uh, now, there were some instances, I think. So the pension 
LDI, I think in the UK was a good example of uh, a liquidity problem interacting with leverage problem, right? So that's a combination of two vulnerabilities that amplify each other. Uh, of course, the trigger of that shock was very unique. It was a fiscal policy shock that uh, it, it's kind of idiosyncratic, if you want. There was some other example, like a Korean uh, asset-backed securities market. But generally speaking, particularly focused in the US, I think things have gone pretty smoothly, which if you work on the other side and you need to worry about risk, then the question is like, did I miss something? Or the system is really more resilient and I should feel comfortable. And it's always uncomfortable to feel comfortable, so. <laughs> well, this is something that I always like to ask regulators, which is so much of so much of the financial stability risk seems to be in things that we don't see coming. So given that we've been talking about liquidity risk for, you know, probably eight or 10 years at this point, like, should we be looking at something else? Or do you think the problem has largely been solved? So the way, if I may for a second, think about how we think about financial stability at the fund, right? So we don't try to forecast what the next shock could be. So I think I wouldn't miss all of them, right? If you think about COVID, that's not what probably was on my top list, the war. So I don't want to be in that business. I think what we can do, and we try to do, is to figure out what are the vulnerabilities. So think of vulnerability as an amplifier, right? So there's any shock that hit, whatever that is. And then there are fragilities in the financial system that make the shock bigger. And so we have some sort of like matrix where we look at different sectors. So the sovereign debt, for example, household, corporations, banks, and then what we call non-bank financial institutions. And then we look at different uh, vulnerabilities. So liquidity is one of them, or lack of liquidity. Leverage, financial leverage is another one. FX exposure or interconnectedness between the system. And then we try to fill the matrix based on the data we have. And we do this for the 29 systemically important countries and we track them over time. So liquidity is one of them. Again, there were examples like the Dash for Cash in 2020 was a good example that involved a specific entity in the non-bank financial intermediation sector. There was the LDI in the UK. It's a combination of liquidity and leverage. There was Archegos, it's another example, I think more of financial leverage, perhaps interconnectedness. So those are the things we are looking at. But again, um, the thing to me, the biggest puzzle now is financial leverage. There's a lot of talks of leverage position being unwound and rates move higher, volatility rises, but you don't really see the system breaking. So again, it's either because it's been the financial regulators have done a great job post financial crisis, or maybe we are missing something. They're like, Think of the LDI in the UK. Maybe this is like a tremor that it's under the surface and we don't see it, but something else may break. That's the biggest concern at this point, that we are missing something or we're not looking in the right place. So I do think that like at the start of 2022, if you had said to someone, okay, the Fed is going to hike 450 basis points and by and large, things would be smooth. Like I think that would be surprising for a number of reasons. Everyone be had become used to uh, zero de facto zero interest rates. It's, it was a dramatic hiking by any standards. Let's start, like, how would you, like, to what degree would you say that the, uh, the, the smoothness of markets last year can be attributed to post-great financial crisis reforms? So I think there's certainly an aspect to that, right? So the financial, post-financial crisis regulation, in my view, most certainly made the system, the core of the system, so the banking sector, more resilient, right? They have more liquidity, they have more capital, there's a resolution plan, there's a bunch of features that made, like if you want, the fortress of the financial system safer. The risk can move away from there and it moved to what we call the NBFI, or non-bank financial institution. I think of that as hedge funds, investment funds, sovereign wealth fund, pension insurance. Um, 
And part of it, I think it's okay because they have different risk profile, and the different investment horizon, different investment uh, funding structure. And so part of it is fine. The question is one, whether we have visibility into this corner of the financial system, right? So do I, can I actually assess the same way I would assess a bank? And I think the answer is no, because there is a number of data gaps that have to do with this institution, whether this has to do with leverage, for example, perhaps that's the most difficult one, or even liquidity. The other question is, um, are they systemic enough? So suppose something goes wrong and the shock gets absorbed by that entity in the non-bank financial sector, maybe it's okay because it's not systemic. It can absorb, it doesn't create a financial stability event. <coughs> FTX. <laughs> that, right. Yeah, in some sense. And then the, the other part is like, is there a feedback though into the banking sector, right? That we have not considered, right? So Archigos, I think the example there was, Yes, the, the entity per se perhaps was not systemic, but there was so much feedback into the back door of the banking sector to prime brokerage, for example. Right? So that, that's kind of how we think about it. Um, I think the reform, there are some unfinished business in the non-bank financial intermediation reform agenda. Some of it, it's holds that have not been covered by the reform agenda. Some of it has to do with implementation. Um, I don't want to just say that it's all bad, though. I think there are advantages and positive of activity and risk moving to the non-bank financial intermediation, right? They have, again, different risk profile, different lending, uh, funding structure, different investment horizon, uh, and they provide to growth to the financial system, provide lending, provide financial services. So that part is good. Other reason, and it's not just financial regulation, activity has moved away from the banks to the non-bank financial intermediation sector also because of technology. So some changing market structure are conducive to being done outside of the bank's balance sheet. They are too structured, they are not nimble enough. There are also conjunctural aspects, right? So for example, when you are at zero interest rate for all 10 plus years, it's normal that some of the risk reshuffles around the way from the banking sector. And then the last one perhaps, especially in advanced economies, central banks have played an important role, people may say, too large of a role in a number of markets. And so that had an impact on pricing itself. So there's a number of factors I think that contributed to this. Some are positive, some are still, I think, open for assessment. Mm. You know, you mentioned Archegos, and, and one thing I often wonder is, it, in the market, we talk a lot about excesses and stretched valuations. And those seem like bad things, but they don't always manifest in terms of financial stability risk, yeah. except Archegos was actually a really good example of that. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how you see, you know, on a day when we're talking about financial conditions, basically going back to where they were before the Fed started hiking, talk to us about what excess in the market means for financial stability. So there's two aspects of this, right? So one has to do with the, if you want to call it like price misalignment or financial condition are too easy compared to the fundamental values, however you measure fundamental values. That's one piece. I think that per se, if there are no leverage employed, if there is no major liquidity mismatch, not, it's not necessarily systemic per se. Someone will lose money, someone will make money, but that's not part of my job. The concern is when that unwinding of financial condition interact with vulnerabilities. Liquidity, or in case of Archegos, it's, it's financial leverage, right? Because then that vulnerability becomes a major amplifier. So it's not just that risk asset price, risk, that risk asset reprice, is that the deleveraging in that case become an amplifier of that reprice. And I fire sale and all the deleveraging that we saw during the financial crisis. There was that component there. I think there was financial leverage employed through derivatives, through prime brokerage. Then the other weak link there was that that was provided by banks, right? And so there was an entry point to the banking sector. 
That's where I think you need to be super careful because for a lot of this financing structure or liquidity provision, somehow it touches the balance sheet of a bank. In some form or shape, somewhere along the chain, hits the balance sheet of the bank. So part of it, it's a risk, but it's also an opportunity for the regulator which you should be able to see it once it touches the balance sheet of the bank. What should financial services C-suites be thinking about around Gen AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. So what should C-suites be thinking about? What's the one key takeaway they should be aware of? Explore the potential of this technology, but with right safeguards in place. Clearly, the technology is fascinating. The potential it provides is something that we have not seen this far. So there is merit to exploring it, but at the same time, it is extremely important for organizations that are operating in regulated industries, such as ours, be guarded and have the right safeguards in place to protect themselves from the risk they are exposed to with this technology. Great stuff. Thanks, Vidya. Learn more at ey.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, another thing that I think when I think about the last year, maybe the last two years, is uh, setting aside the market volatility, there was a lot of growth. I mean, and maybe it's just nominal growth, but of course, if you have a debt, like the most important thing is you get it paid. How much does just the maintaining a growing economy, unlike, say, what we saw in the second half of 2008, how important is that in terms of buttressing financial stability? It's just there are not a lot of people defaulting because people have good incomes, whether it's households, low unemployment rates, or low default rates for corporations? So the, usually, um, and the one this is how we used to look at the Fed, growth to me, it's a precondition for financial stability, right? You cannot have financial stability without growth. You need growth. So growth, it's really important. And so that growth that came off the, if you want the recession, if you want to go that way, of the COVID was in part because central bank stepped in majorly, right? So. The Fed here are the major central bank and ended up backstopping the full financial system. If you compare that with 2008, the backstopping was faster, more aggressive, and wider. Um, the other difference with 2007, 2008 was fiscal policy, right? So if you remember the size of the Obama administration fiscal plan and think about the number of fiscal measures that have been taken in the US during COVID and the size of those, right? 
the combination of the two easy financial condition plus fiscal policy has turbocharged essentially the economy. Now, the downside of that is I think perhaps we as a community in general, policymaker, maybe markets too, we have been slow to recognize the inflation problem, right? So because growth was going fast and because fiscal policy hadn't been using that size for a while, um, that's where I think the concern is now. And this is why we went into the tightening monetary policy and so on. So the flip side of that fast growth has been inflation at levels that we haven't seen since the late 70s, early 80s. Is inflation, how does inflation manifest itself in financial stability risks? Yeah, so the, the, the risk here, and I think that's why price stability is so important, is that if you don't tackle inflation now, so if you don't let prevent inflationary pressure from becoming entrenched into the inflation dynamics, so core inflation wages, and you let inflation expectation and more from the target, it's gonna be way more expensive to bring inflation down. So the, in some sense, like, personally, I, don't th I think there is an asymmetry in cost here, right? So if you say, okay, well, is the cost higher if I am tightening not enough or if I'm not tightening too much? Personally, I think the cost is higher if you not aggressively approach this. If you think of the late 70s, early 80s in the US, it took a lot of high tightening monetary policy for Paul Volcker to bring inflation down, right? So being proactive and preventing that entrenchment and increasing inflation, inflation expectation, I think is crucial because you can control it, then you can bring, eventually, you can bring rates down to where, where they're supposed to go. Now, of course, if you do this pace on which this is done, financial condition tighten. If anything, now the puzzle is why they haven't tightened more than yeah. otherwise, right? Any model that we, you run, if you say, okay, the, the risk-free rate moves by 450 basis points, I think ex ante, at least, based on historical relationship, will tell you the financial condition should be way tighter. I mean, we had uh, March 2020, it was just the Fed, you know, in addition to the massive stimulus, and then there were a couple of other rounds of stimulus afterwards, and then the Fed just, you know, opening up one acronym after another, trying to backstop a market, and maybe, uh, you know, in retrospect, that contributed to inflation, but was that a sort of like, you know, from your perspective, is like, this is an example of, we saw what happened in 2008, 2009, when we go slow and we let growth collapse, when we let nominal income collapse, and it's sort of a, a successful lesson learned. I have no doubt that was successful. I mean, the alternative would have been like falling into a crater of growth, right, in the Great Recession story. Um, the issue is that that response and the easing of financial condition and the buildup of some of this vulnerability highlighted some of the reform agenda that, that you mentioned before has now been addressed though. Right, so the chapter that we pulled out in last October was about open-end investment fund. And that's an example, I think, a sector where there are liquidity mismatch, right? Particularly those open-end investment fund that have daily redemption for illiquid asset, right? Think about high-yield corporate bond, for example. That's where I think the risk is, and that's what we have seen in March 2020. The outflows from those uh, uh, open-ended funds was about 5% of assets. That was larger than during the financial crisis. Um, and the counterfactual of the Fed not stepping in very quickly and starting to backstop not just QE or asset purchases, but backstopping credit market would have been a much larger decline in asset prices, right? And so what we show in that chapter, it's one that there is a link between the illiquidity of the funds and what they hold, right? So assets that are held by illiquid funds tend to drop in prices much more and that there are much more volatility in return. So for example, one standard deviation shock in the liquidity, so some sort of what you saw in March 2020, increased volatility of return by 20%, which is a large 
significantly large number. And that's where I think you need to think about do we, what, what do we need to fit, fit in terms of policy agenda? Is there a whole, do we need to think about the regulatory perimeter? What tools do we need? So just on this note, I, there is that inherent tension between, you know, offering someone illiquid assets and putting them in a some sort of liquid wrapper that allows them to go in and out on a daily basis. What is the fund's view on the best way to deal with that risk? And also, given what we saw in 2020, when the Fed effectively came in and backstopped uh, not just credit markets, but um, the treasury market as well, which is supposed to be the most liquid market in the world, like, does that mean, was that the end game? Problem solved? Central banks backstop this and liquidity risk is no longer an issue? No. So my personal view is that if you want to live in a world where every X number of years the central banks need to step in and backstop the financial system and every time push the line one more, I think you need to rethink the regulatory perimeter then. Right? If you want to be on the receiving end of the financial sector backstop, then the perimeter needs to be different. right? So you need to be within the perimeter. They're not outside the perimeter, obviously, but there's a different way of thinking about financial stability risk or systemic risk at that point, right? So the issue here is that you're providing daily liquidity when there is underlying illiquid asset. Now, of course, they all liquidity buffer and so on. So there's a threshold for a period of non-stress. Perhaps the system is fine. People can have different views. The problem is during stress, if you eat through the liquidity buffer, they're forced to sell asset, right? So you face redemption, you sell, you generate fire sale. And because of the structure, there is an incentive to run first because you're not bearing the transaction cost when you get out first, right? the way this is designed. And so I want to get out first before I, the market's price are going down, essentially, the NAV. So that generates that run dynamics that has important systemic implication because you go into fire sale. And that social cost of the first mover is not addressed by the, the way the design of, this, of these features are now. So, what we look at, we look at a bunch of possible solutions there or measure, and we did some work across countries. Usually, what the most common tools in terms of liquidity uh, risk management tools are either suspension, obviously, or redemption gates or redemption fees. Those are pretty much widespread. What is much less common is either what we call swing prices, so essentially the ability to incorporate in the price you pay to exit of the externality or, if you want, the transaction cost that you impose of those sustain the fund. Those are not common, uh, not in the US for sure, and even in Europe, are, in some sense, they're voluntary. And then this is the open debate of what do you do with the liquidity buffer? Do they work or not? So what we find there is that the liquidity buffer, there seems to be some relationship between the liquidity of the underlying and liquidity buffer. That is, if you hold more illiquid asset, you generally, on average, tend to have higher liquidity buffer. The results that's more interesting, though, is that one, there is very widespread use of these liquidity buffers. Some, when you talk to people to, in markets, some tend to actually use them actively. So I'm going to sell the most liquid stuff, use my credit lines, and hope for the best, if you want. Others don't want to touch it because they don't know what's coming next, and so they start selling the less liquid stuff. So there is a very different use of this liquidity buffer. But on average, at least what we find is that during stress, the average fund, if you want, tends to grow the liquidity buffer. They just don't want to use it. They don't know what is coming. So if that's the case, that is not helpful for the ex-ante incentive to run, right? It doesn't prevent that. Swing prices are mostly used in Europe. Again, swing prices is the ability essentially to correct the price which you take money out based on this transaction cost that you impose on others. The problem is that 
in principle, they are effective to reduce volatility. The problem is that the buffer of the swing factor, if you want, how much of this is used, is too small compared to what would be used. And either because of competitive reason or because of stigma, whatever the reason is, they're not calibrated to the way that they should be calibrated during stress time, at least. Another option, which is more extreme, if you want, is to more formally link your ability to exit these vehicles from, to the liquidity of the underlying, right? So you mentioned the real estate one there, the liquidity is not daily, right? You only have a specific period where you can withdraw. Um, if you go into the loan market in the US and you go back decades, there was no daily liquidity. They used to be called, if I remember correctly, intermittent funds, or there were quarterly or monthly liquidity. You need to give advance, and then when it comes time, you withdraw. That allows you to, I think, manage liquidity better. I think there's a lot of controversy on whether you should uh, restrict the liquidity that can be given based on the underlying. But that, that would be, in principle, the cleanest way to fix the underlying mismatch between the liquidity and the underlying assets. So just on that note, you know, one thing with liquidity is I, I think a lot of times when people talk about liquidity risk, often they're talking about basically price risk and the risk that you're going to see a big drop when you try to sell. How do you disaggregate those two things? And also, there, there is an argument to be made that um, if you're holding illiquid assets and if you can get away from marking them to market um, that often, that it can actually see you through a rough patch, right? Again, we see this with real estate nowadays, which is like a lot of the big funds haven't had to mark their assets to market and they're sort of holding on, waiting for a potential recovery. And that helps in the interim. So let me start with the liquidity one. Um, I think and take the treasury market here or the, the guild market in the UK, right? Um, and the issue was that in some cases it was really hard to sell, right? You could not find a bid, right. even if these are supposed to be the most liquid, the, the most liquid fund. And so you should not see those in the most liquid markets. That's supposed to be the risk-free asset, right? You should be able to sell. Um, the issue with liquidity, I think, has to do with the fact that often also interact with other vulnerabilities. Like, like I made the example of leverage, right? That's what we call liquidity spiral, at least in, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the profession. That's where liquidity and, and leverage interact with each other. My personal view is getting rid of mark to market. It's like kind of like hiding a little bit. Um, I want investors to be able to price risk and not marking to market. And I can see the argument of saying, okay, if I can only bridge to there, then the world is going to be in a better place. My view is that you need liquidity. You need to provide disclosure, more disclosure. I'm more in favor of disclosing trade, for example, because in the end, yes, you will take a loss, but you price markets where they're supposed to be. Past experience during the financial crisis or when the pricing of risk in the subprime market will postpone, I don't think that's where we want to be. I think we want to be in a place where you price market. And yes, sometimes it's going to overshoot. You know, uh both of you talked about the um, the LDI situation in the UK, and of course, in March 2020, we had that big dislocation in the treasury market, but it was sold fairly quickly in terms of the central bank stepped in and was a buyer, and then the prices returned to normal. And then in subsequently to March 2020, and the Fed has stood up a standing repo facility, and so like there's even more liquidity available theoretically for uh, treasury buyers. How powerful is that? just looking at the sort of risk-free assets within any given country, to what degree should more, is, would you, should more central banks s set up more robust facilities to create uh, a sort of like both directional liquidity for holders of government debt? 
So I don't think personally that the central bank should be in the business of managing daily liquidity, right? So I can see a role where the central bank is the lender of last resort, or the liquidity provider of last resort. What the standing river facility is meant to do, it's meant to cap in some terms rates, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to see what you saw in September 19, where when they were normalizing the balance sheet, the repo rates back. That's what the facility is meant to be. That is not meant to be a day-to-day -day normal way of providing liquidity. Liquidity is in the market, there are buyers and sellers. That's how the system should work. What has changed in the treasury market is that the underlying structure has changed, right? What the broker dealer used to do now is done by principal trading firms. It's done by firms that are not part of the traditional banking system and they're not within the traditional regulatory perimeter. That is technology evolution. I think the question is where the perimeter should be. There are also other measures discussed, again, have to do with transparency of trades, so disclosing trades, and whether you should use central counterparty to net some of this position out and reduce some of the explosion, whether they would free up balance sheet effectively to provide liquidity. I don't think the daily-to-day job of a central bank should be provide liquidity to markets. To me, that's a lender of last resort function that I think it's super important. Uh, that raises our question, though, that if you have access to the lender of last resort function of a central bank, how, where the perimeter of the regulation should be, right? You can't be just receiving a check and then the central bank should be completely out of that business. Personally, I think that's a very uncomfortable business for a central bank to run. Uh, just on this liquidity question, uh, one of our all-time favorite All Thoughts guests, Chris White, uh, said something on the podcast once, which was, uh, he asked a question, which is, is liquidity something which sort of happens naturally if you have a market that is properly networked with people talking to each other? Or is it a service that you should have to pay up for? And I'd be curious to hear a regulator's view on that topic? I think liquidity is a financial service and like any other financial service, there's a price. The problem, I think, after 15 years of zero interest rate, zero volatility, pre-Fed tightening, was that liquidity was not properly priced. That was a big problem. So you get used to a, a place where liquidity is abundant, it's essentially free, and you don't price the risk, right? So there's a Think about price of liquidity, break it down in two pieces, right? The expected liquidity and the risk premium, how much you want to pay for insurance if, you, or if you're providing it. I think that part, that's where it was mispriced. There was the liquidity premium was not paid. People were not paying for the, they were not willing to pay for a situation where liquidity would go away. And I think with normal interest rate normalizing, volatility rising, eventually the hope is that people will start to price liquidity. It should be, liquidity is not free. Liquidity is a financial service that you should probably pay for and provision for. What should financial services C-suites be thinking about around Gen AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. So what should C-suites be thinking about? What's the one key takeaway they should be aware of? Explore the potential of this technology, but with right safeguards in place. Clearly, the technology is fascinating. The potential it provides is something that we have not seen this far. So there is merit to exploring it, but at the same time, it is extremely important for 
organizations that are operating in regulated industries such as ours be guarded and have the right safeguards in place to protect themselves from the risk they are exposed to with this technology. Right stop. Thanks, Vidya. Learn more at ui.com. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I want to go back to some of these funds uh, that occasionally have issues with redemptions. There was the real estate one recently. I think it was after the energy crash, like in 2015 or 2016, or that people started worrying about the high-yield funds or the high-yield ETFs in the U.S. and so forth. But none of those turned out to be systemic per se. I mean, people got anxious about the funds themselves, et cetera, but even some of the recent stuff like didn't seem like there were huge spillovers. What is the scenario in which something, some stress that emanates from some fund or some class of funds because becomes something that we would, regulators should be concerned as systemic risk? So it's just a question about mutual fund, open-ended fund or ETFs or both? Either one, however you want. Okay, let me start with the first one with the open-ended funds. I think the risk is, again, what I was dis- describing before, that you run for the door because I don't want to come after you and because there are incentives to do that. And then by going out, you generate a spiral where you get fire sale because they need to liquidate to pay you and the price moves much more than it should have. I would argue if you take 2020 as an example, that saying the system didn't break, it's a little bit too um, generous as a view. The system didn't break because in a month, the Federal Reserve backstop the entire financial system, right? So if I give you a counterfactual where instead of that month, they wait another month, my expectation is that the system will have cracked in a different places. Um, DTFs, I think my view has changed over time. I think I was trying to look for places what could go wrong there. I think they provide an important liquidity function. Um, you can get out, you just sell your share of ETFs, and in some sense, they do sell the price, right? The concern that I have there is more the opaque world of the authorized participants, right? So the dealers that create and redeem shares particularly in fixed income where in, in equities, I think it's easier if you have the S&P 500, the bucket that you use is more or less the index. With fixed income, the basket you use to create and redeem is way smaller than that. And there is a lot of opacity exactly what's in those baskets, who's provided to whom. If they don't provide that function and it breaks down, then the creation redemption can break. Now, whether that's systemic or not, I don't know. But to me, that's where one question mark is. Just on March 2020 specifically, it's like, okay, that that situation required enormous support from the Fed and other central banks. But I think it was a point that, you know, we talked to um, Josh Younger, who was then at JP Morgan, now at the New York Fed. Like, should regulators be optimizing for 
the type of crisis that emerges from a once in a century pandemic. Like, I don't know, like, is the is it worth like having the system be robust or should we say, okay, once in a century pandemic, it's not so bad if that requires the Fed to step in and start spraying money everywhere? First of all, uh, it's two times in a century now because it's from the GFC to to, uh, to COVID, right? So it's kind of close to each other. Okay. Um, I agree. I don't think you should calibrate to financial disaster every time. But I think there is something in the middle between calibrating like that and what is done now. I think there are steps that can be taken to fix some of this liquidity mismatch. Uh, whether this is um, swing prices, for example, and utilization of those. So regulator can, for example, provide guidance on the implementation of some of these liquidity tools. They can consider whether they, some of these liquidity tools should be mandatory. The problem is there's no alignment between the incentives of the individual manager of the funds and the, the system financial stability objective, right? If you align those, then the system works better. So whether this is, again, guidance, mandatory use of some liquidity tools, whether this is stress testing, whether this is disclosure, I think you can find a combination of this. It's going to be a function country by country, depending on the institutional setup, the legal setup. Can, some things can work better than others. And again, for minimizing the gap between the liquidity that you provide and the liquidity of the underlying. One last point. There is another aspect that often is not discussed in the US, but some of these players are made of these open-ended funds are major players in emerging markets. And when you see this in and out of those flows of those countries, you can break those markets very easily. And so there is an, if you want, a cross-border systemic aspect to this, and maybe it's not just US focused, but uh, at least for me working at the fund, uh, for some countries, those are large, large movers. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, you mentioned incentives there. Can you talk a little bit more about the incentives at play for, you know, fund managers, for instance, when it comes to handling liquidity risk? And one thing you said earlier was very interesting to me, this idea that, you know, a lot of these funds will build up liquidity or cash buffers, but will be reluctant to actually start running them down in times of stress. So that was like, I, I, there was a time I, I talked to a few people in the, the loan market, how they were managing liquidity, right? One was trying to understand what is your definition of liquidity buffer, right? what do you use? Is it cash? Is it lines of credit? Is the most liquid leveraged loans? Do you hold treasury securities? How big the buffer is? I mean, there's a trade-off between, yeah, of course, you can hold a huge liquidity buffer, but it's going to hit your return at some point, right? So if I want to invest in leveraged loans, I don't want you to hold 20% in liquidity. So that's one piece. The other one was trying to understand the waterfall, if you went, right? How do you manage this? And I thought it was quite interesting then I got two very different responses. Like from, I'm gonna start using and selling the, if I have some liquid, liquid like securities after cash, then maybe use my lines of credit, then progressively move to the less liquid stuff. And then others, they would tell you, I would never touch it, not even if you shoot me. I just, that's because I don't know what's next here. I need that as my insurance. So I don't think the regulator should tell you exactly whether you should manage this personally. I think they should provide some guidance. I sense now that it's too much left to the individual manager that does not internalize what the systemic implications of the behaviors are. So one of the things that's happened on this podcast of doing it for seven years is we've seen this evolution in the type of things that we talk about. And we used to have a, you know, do a lot of episodes on like the repo market and credit market liquidity, all these type of things. And then in the last two years, many of our episodes have become like very like physical world, commodity risk, the one financial crossover with commodities we saw, like, you know, there was the crisis at some point last year in the nickel trading at the London Metals Exchange. Can you talk a little bit about how like 
as this, and I don't know how long like commodity markets or energy security is going to remain so top of mind, but you know, we weren't really talking much about that prior to COVID and the, some of the commodity shocks. Can you talk a little bit about how you're incorporating some of those stresses into your thinking and the challenges of thinking about these markets from a uh, financial regulatory perspective? Yeah, so if the matrix I was describing before, energy trading were not there, obviously, right? So and those were not the entities we're yeah. following closely for which we didn't. Uh, so that was one lesson I think learned <laughs> during the, the February episode. I think it's important to follow for a number of reasons. One, because they are, they are important players in the financing of the physical assets, right? So they provide collateralized lending to shipments of various commodities. So that's one important piece. So they're very much linked to the physical asset. Two, because they are crucial player in the derivatives market. The derivatives market is used by producer as a hedge. And so they play a crucial role in the middle. Obviously, there are banks involved and so on. So they play a function that is important for the smooth operation of their market. Commodities are global markets. Um, the, the risk from a financial stability perspective, one that we quickly discovered is that there were no data. And so if you want to say, OK, I'm going to have a chart, and I don't know what chart to show. Uh, some of these entities have publicly traded bonds. So that's what we were showing. That was for us a proxy of investor concern about these firms, but that was pretty much it, right? They have no visibility into their leverage position, who they were playing, what market. Uh, there was huge sense of opacity in terms of where the risks were. That was the big question, I think, the big flag, red flag came up. So we're trying to do a better job going forward. I mean, the big gap, again, it's data. Data, and honestly, they're not uh, the easiest one to, uh, to have conversation with. <laughs> Glencore doesn't want to talk to you? I can't imagine. I, I, I see easier conversation with other people. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned cross-border spillage risks earlier. And, and one of the things that I, I've thought about and I've written about at various times is, is the role of benchmark index providers in directing inflows and outflows. And I think the IMF has done some work on this too. But how much of a risk is that? Just this idea that you create a benchmark, everyone tries to hug it as closely as possible. And if you get a major change in the index, for instance, if China is added or taken yeah. out, it mm -hmm. triggers all these flows. Okay, so again, this positive is like everything, right? Opportunities and risk, right? So I think opportunities are being added to the risk. It means that country opens up to capital flows. So capital flows are important for growth, for financial transactions. So there's the positive coming with it. The, the risks are that the behavior of passive investor or benchmark investor is very different from, say, EM dedicated funds, right? EM dedicated fund, it's really about going in and picking the right country, picking the right credit, doing more of the credit work, if you want, or sovereign work. Benchmarking, you just follow an index. And what we found is that the behavior of investors that just benchmark are much more linked to global financial conditions. So when financial conditions change and they tighten globally, this guy tends to leave. And so by being in the index, yes, you get more capital, but you are much more exposed than before if you want to the risk appetite change of the global investor. That's the downside of, of being in, in the index. So uh, that's where I think then it's important for the local. Now, there's another opportunity, actually. They often tend to deepen the liquidity of the local markets, right? So there are benefits. That's where, though, the local regulator, I think they need to play a role in terms of like regulation that is appropriate for those kind of flows. Because those investors are not the typical EM dedicated investor that sticks there. Those are investors that moves with global financial risk appetite. And we have seen that over the last past few years. 
I want to go back to something you said near the beginning that I found to be really interesting, the idea of growth being a precondition for financial stability. And often when I think about central bankers around the world or regulators, it feels like to me that like the sort of macro part of their job and the regulatory part of their job are like two separate things and that there's, you know, managing the banks, making sure this and then also like making sure they hit their inflation and unemployment goals, et cetera. Is that the case in my misperception or do like should central bankers, should regulators recognize the interlinkages between maintaining robust growth and financial stability more than they currently do? I mean, think of like the banking sector, right? Yeah. The best ingredient for success of banks is growth, right? Because they have healthy balance sheet, they have healthy capital position, liquidity position, and so to me, if without growth, the system is much more fragile. The way we think about financial stability in terms of our framework, we take, we, we use financial conditions, we use economic condition, then we try to forecast what the distribution of growth will be, right? And so we think about financial stability as the left tail, if you want, the downside risk. That's for us the link between financial condition, vulnerabilities, and growth. What, the, what policymakers are trying to do when they think about financial stability are trying to minimize the downside, the tail. That's to me, it's the link between growth and financial stability. That's the framework we use in the financial stability report. I have just one more question, and I'm sure this is the one you get asked at every interview, but what are you most worried about at the moment? I think what I'm most concerned now is this sense of comfort that nothing is broken. Um, and As evidenced by this interview and many of our questions. But it, it is because I, I am reluctant to embrace this idea that we made the system more resilient and this has worked out smoothly. Maybe it's the case and then we should celebrate. I'm just concerned that, I don't know, the energy trading firm was an example. Right? That there are corners of the system that I've not paid enough attention, they've grown over time, that they've become systemic either because of size or because they use leverage in forms that they're not apparent or I don't have data or I don't understand the dynamic, right? So the LDI was a good example. People knew about LDI. This is not a new thing that was learned, right? It just happened that combination of that business model with illiquidity in the guilt market, with the policy shock that perhaps no one, uh, it was difficult to forecast, but the combination of all these factors created a situation where what was going on in the UK had tremors across the globe. You had repricing of credit risk in the US, you have repricing of asset-backed securities in as far as Australia because people were selling across assets. That's the part that's concerned me of missing something and becoming too comfortable in this, okay, we got the right matrix with the right vulnerabilities, the right model, level model, because a lot of these are created with the lens of the past, right? So the lens of the last crisis, that crisis tends to be different. So I'm reluctant to be too comfortable that we managed to, uh, to handle financial stability. It's good not to be complacent yeah. if you're a financial stability like person. The regulators, financial, they should, it should be a healthy paranoia. I think it's also true that no one had, you know, liability-driven strategies on their bingo card for 2022 financial stability risks. So that's a really good example. Uh, shall we leave it there, Joe? Yeah, let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.